0: Which had Helen Morse and Ruth Cracknell and a um, whole bunch of people that I always kind of thought that'd be nice to work with. Mm. And at the end of that, I went, "Oh, well, that'll do." That <laughs> there came a point even in my opera career where I, um, I actually would turn up to the theatre and get tired of putting contact lenses in. Yeah. And I just thought, um, I don't know if, I, if if I'm tired of doing that. I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Yeah. You know. I feel you yeah
1: it, it 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 does require a certain something of a person to um, to persist with that level of energy and that level of dedication yeah. and I don't mean that in a positive or a negative way uh, um, but it certainly there certainly has to be something to keep driving you
0: and it can be quite debilitating that life you know because you're always at at the mercy of other people mm. other people you, you have very little agency over your own career you know like, and i felt that you know I was, i'd turn up to auditions and i wouldn't know why i'd missed out and stuff like that and so suddenly i mean a big part of life happiness is about autonomy and agency and the entertainment industry removes a lot of that agency from you it <laughs> it's really not does.
1: conducive to a happy life
0: not really not really <laughs> you've got to have something else driving you yeah all the time
1: yeah, um, yeah. certainly if you're putting your life and career in the hands of others, mm. which a lot of performers, a lot of directors, a lot of producers, you know, they do. They they wait by the phone or they, they um, see it as... They see themselves as helpless, almost.
0: And the reality is you kind of are helpless mm. in a way because a lot of the time it's a real lottery as well. You know, like... I, I do know that sometimes you just don't know why you've missed out. Mm. I, I mean, it's similar to being an academic in that we'll, we'll send off a paper to a journal and these are peer-reviewed journals, so it goes out there, it's double-blind, so we don't even know who's looking at the work and who's assessing it. And you'll get um, you'll get reviews back. So normally with the big journals, you get three or four reviews back. Two of them will love the paper. One will say, you know, it needs a bit of work and one will say, reject it. And and you don't know why, and mm. there's no consistency. But the rejection itself in that kind of context is supported by the fact that you know that everybody else, even the best people, don't really know why. And, and maybe it's also a collective thing. Like I write with quite a few people. And you know, one, one guy that I write with, he's, a, um, he's on the World Health Organization panel, and he does all this advice in the area that I work with. And he gets rejected when I write with him. And I think, okay, well, you know, it's a lottery to some degree. Totally. Hey,
1: friends. Sorry about the delay in the release this week. I I was a little bit unprepared and I went and saw Kevin Smith last night and didn't get home until late so that's why the show's a little bit late this week and speaking of Kevin Smith at his Q&A last night I was very fortunate to get to ask him a question and Kevin is a massive hero of mine and a huge inspiration for myself in what I want to do in telling the stories that I want to tell in following my heart and in putting my stories out into the world and and having my own voice and owning that voice Um, my question to him was about uh, podcasting, and, and, um, and his answer, uh, which went for 107 minutes, um, was all about following your own dreams, following your own heart, following your own passion, and basically saying, if you build it, they will come, the audience will find you, uh, so I just wanted to take a minute to thank you for finding us, for finding this podcast, for connecting, for coming back or for tuning in for the first time. And for indulging me in what is essentially my own kind of spiritual, creative development program that I'm putting out into the universe. So for new friends who are tuning in for the very first time, welcome to my ramble. And uh, this episode is actually a, um, a little sidestep out of what we normally do. Up to this point in time, I've been talking to people in the uh, in the entertainment industry, uh, mostly actors, about why they've chosen to follow this career path and and... Uh, stories and experiences and lessons that they've learned on the way. And uh, if you go back through the archives, you can find some amazing uh, chats with uh, people like uh, Samuel Johnson, Damian Walsh Howling, uh, Liam McIntyre, Toddie Goldsmith, Michaela Bannis. Just a list of incredibly generous and uh, and amazing stories and people. And before we get into this week's interview, you may have seen a photo of me wearing a hockey jersey outside the Kevin Smith uh, Q&A last night. Well, I'm going to tell you how you can uh, win one of these hockey jerseys at the end of the show. It's really exciting. I'm so excited to uh, have merchandise for this. Who would have ever thought that would happen? But moving along. Today's guest is a tremendously uh, credentialed human being. He... He's a former opera singer, public servant, petrol pump attendant, McDonald's crew member, and stand-up comedian before he was an academic. He's currently on the Deakin Business School and is a consumer psychologist. I met him on a shoot where he was talking about uh, consumer behavior in relation to merchandising and filmmaking, and I thought, he's a guy who understands why we do what we do for a living, so I have to get him to come and talk to me on my podcast. This week's guest... Coming up next, Dr. Paul Harrison. i just super excited about today's uh, podcast recording. It's our first divergence away from the entertainment industry. I'm here with Dr. Paul Harrison, who was uh, an opera singer um, until 1997, as you may have just heard him saying. Uh, he has then gone on to become a doctor in consumer psychology. Yep. Um, I met Paul, uh, I was doing a shoot for the project not long ago. And just in listening to the way that he was talking, I knew this was someone that I really wanted to talk to on air. um, Because essentially what you do is understand why people do what they do. Mm. Um, and that's deeply fascinating and what so what was the moment then for you where you went you diverged away from opera in 1997 and then when i want to move into consumer psychology
0: look uh, it's so interesting because uh, um it wasn't like a a judgment that i made i i got to a point where i thought i don't know if I like this life as well, and I I had two young kids, and not that that's the issue, you know, that I had kids that I decided that I wanted to do that. There was there was just this sense that, um, well to, to go back a bit, you know, when I was learning opera, when I was studying opera with an extraordinary baritone, Ron McConaughey who was quite famous and you know taught Pavarotti and people like that, you know, wow. so he was pretty amazing, and he was one of the Australian, one of the great Australian baritones, and he was my teacher and. That, when I finished studying at the Victorian College of the Arts, you know, I did, I just said to him, what do you reckon? You know, will I have a career as an opera singer? And he said to me, you'd probably have quite a reasonable career in Europe as a chorus member or as a, a minor soloist, but I don't think you've got the bulk and, and the body and maybe not even the voice to be a star. And, and I guess that's kind of... It was great that he said that, but it's kind of confronting to be told yeah. that you're not going to be... And how old would you have been then? Um, 22? Uh, no, because I came to it late, so I was probably about 27, 28 okay. kind of thing. And I'd moved to Melbourne to study at the VCA with him. It wasn't bad. It was kind of, you know, for, for a lot of people, that's actually really positive mm. advice, you know, to be told these things. But I guess... Part of being a performer is that you actually do think that you're going to be the one, mm. that you're going to be a big success. And that was, kind of, that was a moment. I think, I think life is moments as well. Or choices, you know, are a collection of moments. I think, you know, the, the birth of our first child, my, you know, my wife and I, our first child was a moment where I was, just went, I wonder whether I can sustain this. But at that time, I had a contract with the Victoria State Opera, so life was pretty reasonable, and it was a regular income and stuff like that. Um, but then there kind of came points where, I, I don't know, a lot of people have this, you know, you set these goals, these objectives in life, and you think, you know, I want to achieve these things. Mm. And really quickly, probably over a period of about one and a half, two years, all of those things just got ticked. You know these wow. these amazing things, and and again it was like you know I'd wanted to sing next to Yvonne Kenny, who is a you know I had a massive opera crush on her <laughs> as well, and within six months of um, of joining the Victoria State Opera, I was standing on a stage next to her kind of thing singing, and there were just a lot of moments where I just went maybe this isn't for me, and then I'd look at the friends that I went through um, Victorian College of the Arts with, the VCA with, and see them seeing them grappling with the gigs getting gigs getting work and I maybe there's a little part of me that just wants security I kind of know that as well and I thought okay what can I do that gives me security and um, and not not that you'd go into academia for security but there was just this sense of what do I love doing um, I do remember a Sunday afternoon, you know, in, in our one-bedroom flat in Clifton Hill, sitting down and kind of mapping all the things that I wanted to do. And it's interesting, actually, because, um, you know, my, my partner, she said, what do you want to wear to work? You know, and I, and I went, oh, okay, that's, that's a good oh. way to think about, you know, mm. what you want to do. And then she said, well, what do you want to do in your day? And we kind of did this map of things, and then we found these jobs, and then um, an offer was made. Oh, no, there was an ad in the paper that kind of said they needed an arts... An entertainment management lecturer at Deakin University I'd never taught I'd studied arts management but I'd never taught it um, and then I applied for it I'd been running a dance company in Canberra and I, I applied for it and got it and then after a year I was told because I didn't have a PhD I couldn't keep the job and so I went okay I have to do a PhD so I ended up doing a PhD, and it became a PhD in consumer psychology, particularly around loyalty, and I kind of built a model of antecedents to loyalty around um, what you'd call difficult brands, you know, and the kind of things I looked at was the arts, um, things like Fringe Festival and bands that are secondary brands, not bands that are secondary bands, that, that don't have huge followings but the following they have is incredibly committed Mm. and then it kind of moved from there and you know i i now um do research not just in arts but i look at it um public health and population health um and it is a, a fascination with why people do what they do and and that's actually you know the the most brilliant job that i could have because it still allows a creative outlet and when you're an academic it gives you the capacity to have an opinion that is respected as well like I'll write an op-ed for the age or the city morning herald and just with the fact that I'm published in that those papers people think he must know something mm. <laughs> so he has authority <laughs> as well and that that's you know that's a a brilliant kind of place to be in mm, as it's well. a great platform yeah and you got to make a film that got
1: into St Kilda film festival I did I did
0: ago. that's right that's right and and again it's about well, for me, it's always been about what do I love doing and how do I then hold on to that security of the job, continue to do what they they want me to do at Deakin, but also do the things that I love doing. And so, you know, writing and directing a film, um, being able to kind of use the skills that I've learned in other areas to communicate. And I think that's the other thing that a lot of academics don't do very well is communicate, and that's, you know, why the project and all the TV stations often get me on is because... Um, I recognize that actually part of your job as an academic is to communicate ideas to people and challenge people and, and do that kind of thing.
1: Mm. Um. I've got a whole lot of questions that I want to ask you, but I would really be fascinated to understand why I do what I do. Yeah. Uh, if that's something that you're... Happy to take we can me. Give through. it a go.
0: We can give it a go. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a trained psychologist. Yeah, So, yeah. um, but I I do a lot of research looking at people's lives. Mm. Um, I one of the methodologies I use is life course methodology, which is a kind of multi method technique that looks at all the different steps that people play, take in their lives. And I was actually just you know today talking to my wife about these people that I'm interviewing at the moment who are in there who are in old aged care homes. And how incredibly fascinating these lives are and how um you know, when you're in your nineties, how unvalued you are by society, mm. and yet these people are telling me these extraordinary stories that you just think, wow, you know, um, the resilience. There's a there was one guy I spoke to who was in his nineties, I think, and he was abandoned by his parents at eleven. Wow. But, you know, he found his way through life and he is still incredibly optimistic. At, in his 90s you mm. know and I just think what is it about that kind of person who is alive? I mean you know the statistics would say he he shouldn't be alive mm. or you know certainly w- would be pretty messed up. And to me then it's what's really interesting is to look at to look at the anomalies, to look at the things outside of what is exciting and different, but also to look at the ordinary, in life as well, I think that's you know talk. You know, if we have this conversation about you, it's it's also about not just the the path that you take, but just the thing, the ordinary things about your existence that led you to where you mm. get to as well. Yeah, right. So, yeah. Mm.
1: So you're thirty. Yeah, I'm thirty. Just turned thirty uh, in December of last year. Right. Um, I'm a filmmaker. I studied. Uh, came from an acting background um, i studied in high school and i thought this is what i want to do i want to be an actor mm-hmm. when i grow up uh, mm-hmm. i mean anyone who's uh anyone who listens to this podcast knows that one of the things that i ask a lot of people is when was the first time that you can remember entertaining people or invite you know and where you get that feedback that yep triggers something in you that goes this is feedback that I want for the rest of my life or this is I want to have this I want to give this for the rest of my life Um, and I have such vivid memories of orchestrating I have a large uh, group of cousins right orchestrating my brother and my cousins in plays and um, and uh, you know little shows that we would do for our family at family gatherings and things like that and feeling that thing of the the directing and the writing and the performing and all of this and and just feeling a connection to that Mm. so yeah wanting to be an actor when i uh when i finished school and then i became a little bit jaded with that pretty young uh you know i was 19 or something when i was like fuck this (laughs) but it wasn't that it wasn't a fuck this it was i want to learn how to take control of this situation it was so i went and studied film right and did that for four years and then i came back to acting after a few years out in the film world doing crew crewing stuff made a few short films came back to acting went to a drama school in melbourne then went and studied overseas and did that for a while and then when i came back went back to filmmaking because i got a job uh following samuel johnson around on a unicycle uh, (laughs) making a documentary on this amazing charity event that he did um called love your sister oh yeah yeah um which incidentally was how I started working with the project. Right, yep. Uh, And yeah, have just sort of continued. It's like there's just cycles of acting and filmmaking. Um, And now I'm at a point where I'm starting to go, well, maybe I don't, maybe it's not the the actual filmmaking or the acting that I'm connected to. Maybe it's inspiring people and um, connecting to people on a human level. Um, That's really what's been driving me to Because, you know, I look back at some of the things that I've done and I go, oh, I don't want to, I wouldn't do that now. Mm. I wouldn't make that short film now. I wouldn't, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in those sorts of things now. Now I'm interested in a more um, like this, you know, doing, yeah. doing this sort of podcast, really asking questions and understanding and seeking information uh, on a, an intellectual and a spiritual level
0: and do you reckon that 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 this idea of you turning 30 has forced the issue a little bit
1: uh, or has
0: it been hanging around for a while
1: i think it's been hanging around for a while yeah there's always i've always felt like there was some sort of incongruence with what i was doing and what i was feeling yeah. and now it feels like that's becoming more aligned
0: so what do you like about the the kind of reward that comes with being creative about because they're all they're, they all sound like the same thing which is that you want to get feedback from others about your worth to some degree or you know mm. your value yeah, yeah. um huh. whether it's you know whether it's acting whether it's directing whether it's inspiring people what i mean why why does that make you feel so good i
1: suppose it makes me feel like i'm not alone yeah it makes me feel like i have value yeah um it makes me feel like I'm authentic and like I'm making a difference. Can I interrupt? What
0: What does authentic mean to you?
1: Um, what is authentic? Like truthful. Like um, I am the most honest that I can be with myself mm. and of myself.
0: So where do you reckon that honesty and truth, I mean, what underlies you know, what's the foundation of that? Because in a, in a way, we construct our own truth, really. Mm. So how, how do you come to that that meaning, that, that truth for you? How do you conjure up this idea of what is truth? <laughs> um,
1: I guess by getting to the basement level of what my needs are and how I meet those needs.
0: And what are your needs? Being wanted? To, to be loved. Yeah. Because I think, I mean, that's the thing is that so much... And to give love, I guess, as ...of well. what we do is about being wanted mm. and connecting. Mm. And because we're a social animal as well. But it is interesting the way that people, I think the way that people map that path out. And, and, and I guess the, the reason I ask about this idea of authenticity or truth mm. is that everybody's truth is truth in a way. Everybody's authenticity is their own lived authenticity mm. but i think what's interesting or what's important is saying well what is what is the foundation for my idea of what is truth as well have i really probed into where that comes from as well and you know it's interesting you've you've kind of very quickly gone through quite a few levels as well by saying actually it's that i want to be wanted mm. as well oh well, i've done plenty <laughs> of work on this <laughs> yeah i bet <laughs> trying to I understand bet. myself yeah and do you do you I mean do you think that you could find that need that desire to be wanted? Have you seen other kind of outlets where people can do that? Because the one thing that I think is really interesting about the entertainment industry is that it's a little bit like a um, uh, I mean there's a there's a kind of element of in psychology kind of the wife bashing syndrome syndrome which is this idea that you're constantly kind of going back because the reward of being back in the relationship is is so positive and so that's one of the reasons why you go back and that's you know mm. the oh, it's usually mostly with men is that they apologize they say I'm so sorry I'll never do this again and they accept that because the reward is so high and in a way you know it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an ele- there's a kind of element of um kind of sadomasochism that goes with with living but also go- constantly submitting yourself to other people's mm. decision making yeah but the reward, as you say, is pretty pretty good
1: mm and I think there's also something in and this can kind of tie back into i guess a more consumer outlook mm. is that we're constantly living in a society that tells us that we're lacking in something, mm. and you know there's an idea that we can always be happier, which creates discontent and creates um desire and want yep um. And I think that fundamentally if we can actually give to ourselves what we're seeking mm. out, like so if I can give myself that validation mm. and I can give myself love, mm. then ultimately I'm not going to seek it externally in, as an intense
0: way. I, I think it's a natural human condition to want to, um, to seek something better. I mean, that's the nature of progress. If we hadn't if we didn't have desire we would never have left for the savannah and said let's go and have a better life you know we'd be sitting there still going, oh this is all right mm. kind of thing and, sounds pretty good to me <laughs> that's right and, and look I think that's the nature of, of consciousness as well like for, for all we for basically what we know is that humans are the only ones who have theory of mind they're the only ones who can actually think about what they're thinking about as well. And so we kind of grapple with these existential questions the way that a shark who attacks Mick Fanning doesn't. It just attacks him <laughs> yeah. and moves on and, gets, and, punched and, and gets punched in the back or whatever it is and goes, ouch, I'll keep looking for food. Whereas, you know, if that shark had a human brain, it'd be going, you know, why did I do what I do? did? That was the wrong thing to do and contemplating all of these things. Mm. I mean, consciousness is a really... Um, the stuff that I research as well, I mean, one of the areas that I research in is kind of why why people um, think that that they understand what they think um, and particularly when I'm doing work for politicians or or doing work that will feed into policy and stuff like that, a big part of that is this folk psychology, this idea that I can be conscious of the things that motivate me that move me through the world. so um, you know these are essential questions that have always been around for humans you know mm. how, how do i live my life in a way and i think you're on the right path in to say well i mean it's qu- it's quite confronting to be told you don't matter you know in reality your existence is meaningless to mm-hmm. some degree you, you you could be here but you don't if if you weren't here it wouldn't matter that much and that's mm. again confronting as a human being having an out of body moment <laughs> <laughs> yeah it it is confronting you know to come to terms with this idea that your existence is based on a whole bunch of random events over millennia. Mm. That's confronting. Um, it's confronting to kind of be, t- be kind of recognise that um, you even being alive now and living in Australia and talking to me is again a whole series of random events. Yep. That <laughs> there was nothing in the universe that kind of played this out, and that when you die, I mean, you'll be remembered by many mm. people in their hearts and loved and all of that, but. It won't matter that much, you know, in the scheme of things. Mm. Um, and so, what we do is that we say, okay, how do I, how do I get some meaning out of that? And I actually think by by recognizing right now that I need to um, kind of live in the moment in a positive way is actually the best way to get meaning. I mean, um, Heidegger kind of talks about being. You know, that you actually being is is a really critical part of existence Mm. rather than constantly thinking about what i would like to be it's actually being is is the way to do it and um the thing that i've constantly come up against uh in the work that i do is and it's kind of a bit of a divergence but is this idea that because i have a brain whoever it is you know whether it's premier or the prime minister or the speaker of the house or whatever because i have a brain i can then impute onto others how they how they'll behave Mm. when in fact um, everybody everybody's lived existence to that point is there's similarities but they're all different as well and there are so many variables that influence why you are where you are but also then influence human behaviour. And I think that's the thing that I, fascinates me all the time is to say how do, we, how do we kind of understand all of the different bits and pieces that get you know, Alistair to where he is, but also how can we um, map out some kind of path so that he has some kind of happiness in his existence in the here and now mm. as well. And you know, to me, to me, I guess what I've adopted personally is this idea of a kind of a yes, let's kind of perspective, which is, you know, have a foundation of, of of something, and for me, it's always about security, but then say yes, let's to opportunities as they arise, and then to some degree, to say, you know, when do you pull the plug? And I, and again, as a human being, humans find it very difficult to kind of pull the plug mm. because. Again, in psychology, there's this thing called investment theory. The more you invest in something, the harder it is then for you to pull out of of that. And that's why people stay in, you know, bad relationships for long periods of time. That's why people pursue careers and, you know, get to their 60s and go, well, that was a bit of a bad idea. (laughs) Thing Because, again, you know, you've put all of your heart and soul and your ego into it. I mean, to even say... Hmm. You know these last forty years are a bit of a waste of time it is an attack on your ego yeah in a way it's saying Massive. you're a bad decision maker and you've been <laughs> making bad decisions for 40 years. so uh, to me it's I un, I'm very empathetic to people you know whatever path they take and so I'm not one of the things I, I like to think is that I don't judge people for the choices they make um, but I like the idea of of people thinking about the choices they make, but then um, even questioning their own thinking, I think is important mm. as well.
1: Yeah. Uh, certainly if there's one thing that I do, it's try and question and understand everything that I do. Mm. Um, but don't overdo it. But no. I was going to say for, <laughs> for better or worse. Yeah. Uh, something that you sort of, you, you kind of went into was, I think this idea of um, how our bio- how our biology and, and the environment that we interact with uh, influence the way we make decisions. I've just completely ripped that line off your yeah. website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which I guess is kind of a nature versus nurture question as well, mm. which is something that I have been fascinated with uh, with previous uh, people that I've spoken to because there is something deeply uh, fascinating about that. If I was born in, um, I don't know, Zimbabwe. Mm. So, you know, in similar circumstances, yep. would I grow up to be a filmmaker or someone in the entertainment Probably
0: industry? Probably not. Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> but i that's the thing that really does fascinate me is that to me, it's, it's part of it is that random events, you know, that that's not even biology or environment. You know, that's just a whole series of people found each other attractive enough over time to get their gear off and do the rude stuff. The no pants dance. That's right. To get to bought, to you know make me exist mm. in Australia at this you know point in time. Now, just recently, you know, I found out something about my heritage that I didn't understand, that I didn't know, that my mum kind of kept hidden from me um, for a long time, which has kind of not changed, but made me think, wow, you know, if if I had known that, or if our family had taken a different path, I don't know how I would have turned out. So I kind of found out that my great grandfather was an Indigenous man. you know? oh, wow! And so but i've I've lived as a white person of privilege all these years. Mm. I, I mean, I don't know whether I don't know how that would have turned out, but that's quite a dramatic turn of events mm. to be told, you know when you're forty eight and in Berlin on holidays, <laughs> and your sister says, Hey, did you know? you know um, and we're still investigating it. Um, but you kind of think, wow, you know a completely different path because, you know, Indigenous people have—I don't know what it is—is is it ten or fifteen years less lifespan than white people? Oh, really? In I Australia, didn't know that. Um, I, I, it might even be more. I, might, you know, I don't know what the numbers are. Um, they're more likely to be in prison. All these kind of things. But interestingly, you know, when I used to ask my mum, "Do we have any exotic blood?" Kind of thing, because I was hoping we might be French or something like that. <laughs> she would, she would say, "Nah, nah." I mean, there's probably some Aboriginal somewhere in our history or something like that. So she was kind of keeping it hidden from us as well. Because when I think about, it, probably when we were growing up, they were still taking children away from mm. families, you know, who were Indigenous, yeah, taking right. you know, whatever. I don't know. I'm speculating all of this stuff. So survival. So this whole idea of these random moments and events and. For me, it's not necessarily, I was going to say sliding doors, but not really, that That you just take this path does tend to map out how your life ends up. But when we kind of go to biology, um, you know, I think that's another thing, is that you have certain kind of chemistry going on, particularly in your brain, that will predispose you to all sorts of things, including, um, you know, we kind of know in res- research that there are predispositions towards all sorts of um i don't really want to use the term but you know psychological predispositions you know and there's things like spectrums that people might be on um resilience spectrums autism spectrums all sorts of things um and then you've got the environment that you're thrust into and 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 i think this is what i find interesting is that you know people may be given a particular biology which predisposes them to um, perhaps being more aggressive than others but then they might be born into a household where the family that came together is less aggressive or less violent or something like that and that sets up a particular kind of value system which then drives them through life. Um, And that's the stuff that fascinates me is is recognising that it's not actually nature versus nurture it's nature and nurture. Together, you know, the, together, mm. and and to try and look at it in a dichotomous way is is, is silly. Mm. Um, generally speaking, you know the the people who mate, the the man and the woman who get together and make the human, they tend to be drawn towards each other because they have particular personality attributes that are appealing to one another. So, generally speaking, you continue on both a kind of chemical and environmental path that was already pre mapped out as well. Um, so it is both, you know, that that the person who has some chemistry that says I'm I'm drawn towards people who are um, mavericks and challengers, they'll be drawn towards people who are mavericks and challengers and the person will be a maverick and a challenger and then they'll go on to make a person who is likely to be a maverick and a challenger, <laughs> although you have, again, you know, genetic changes that happen over time that, that again, random. And, mm. I mean... It's, what
1: happens if you're a ninja and a pirate if you're what a ninja and a pirate
0: <laughs> yes yes what
1: happens you be attracted to another ninja and pirate probably probably mm. and then you'll make little ninja pirates. Ninja, ninja
0: pirates or yeah pingers. um <laughs> but again you know looking at biology and my mother-in-law's a biologist and she studies cells and dna you know when i when you hear about things like Um, cancers and stuff like that. You know, my my wife had leukaemia in 2013. She's in remission, which is fantastic. Mm. But these are random random things. But what's interesting is that the DNA was always going to do this. This is what I find fascinating is that she, my wife always had the DNA that would have this particular cellular malfunction that would create leukaemia. But it could have happened when she was, 70 it could have happened when she was 90 and had already passed away so it wouldn't Mm. have happened or it could have happened when she was 10 it happened when she was 40 and and again these are these are so random but again you know your dna to some degree has set this up as well and i think one of the things that my mother-in-law tells me is that there will come a time when they'll be doing this kind of testing and they'll say, you have a predisposition towards acute myeloid leukaemia. Let's switch off that gene. Wow. And that's, you know, that's, that to me is again, a biological thing. It's not a lifestyle thing, obviously, because leukaemia is not a lifestyle cancer or anything like that. But again, I just think, wow, that's so fascinating. And that's why when, when, um, my wife was in hospital you know i was thinking maybe i'll do a medical degree now because i'm surrounded by doctors and things like that and i thought okay i'll look into it cause... and then i thought no i don't know if i could do 6 years of it's a, it's medicine. a lot more time in
1: uh, in university <laughs> that's right that's right um,
0: um, yeah that's something
1: i uh, dropped into my brain there for a second oh um what are your thoughts on uh I was listening to something talking about being a uh, uh, you know in say 30 or 40 years people being able to download their consciousness Mm. Um, uh, and this as a kind of way of living forever.
0: Yeah. Um, I I think I'm from the school of consciousness and the brain being kind of two different things. It it is interesting because I do a little bit of work in artificial intelligence and neural networking and stuff like that. And my, my, at the moment, my sense is that I don't think we will ever have computers that have the capacity of the human brain. I mean, the brain itself is incredibly flawed, um, and most of the work I do looks at these biases you know, mm. of, of, of human decision-making. Um, but it is also extraordinarily complex in a way that a computer could never be. And, and the reason is that a computer kind of works on the process of of a whole bunch of different bits of information being, you know, saved and then um, recalled. And that's kind of how the brain works, except the brain has all of these kind of synaptic connections going on and links that are happening outside of our control. We don't know when we're making these synaptic links and when we're making these strong memories and things like that. So my suspicion is that I don't know if we'll ever be able to download our consciousness. Um <laughs> The whole brain in a vat thing. I mean, again, you know, philosophically, you know, the brain in a vat thing. We might all be kind of part of the brain in a vat. You know, the brain yeah, in a vat yeah. kind of theory. Um, I, don't, I don't know. The oh, you brain don't know a the brain in a vat theory? No. Um, there is a philosophical theory that basically it's 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 the Matrix or or something like okay. that. That you know, basically that we, none of us exist. There's a brain in a vat somewhere that is feeding us our consciousness, our our existence as well. You know? Having another out-of-body experience. <laughs> That's right, you know. <laughs> um, a little bit, and, and you know, I, I think they're the kind of philosophical things that that are really interesting to grapple with from mm. time to time. Um, but like you say, you don't want to grapple with it too much because you will have out-of-body experiences. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's the stuff that fascinates me. You know, I'm I'm really interested in things like, you know, Plato's the cave, you know, this idea if you're only looking in one direction, you don't know what's going on behind you and you're looking at the shadows on the wall and you're thinking you know what's the world out like there and what what's the world like outside kind of thing um all of these different kind of things are part of what consciousness is because the one thing that that we can do that computers can't and i don't think they ever will be is to make those connections um that are completely um obtuse that they they're so far removed from one another because if you think about it in your moments of quietness that's when you have your most creativity it's when Mm. when you're not thinking about thinking that you have your most creative and that's what the brain can do and computers can't um no matter how my sense is no matter how well you program them you you can't computers can learn things but they can't be creative um, you can't even program creativity into it. And I know that I was watching Media Watch a couple of weeks ago and they were saying that they've got computers you know doing journal uh, like writing articles for newspapers and stuff like that now. Um, Jesus. Yeah, that's right. And and to the point where you know when they test it on people, they can't people can't distinguish between when a computer writes it and when a human writes it. But again, what that's doing is even the even the process of taking a thought and putting it on paper, is a process of moving from kind of an unconscious thinking to a conscious thinking or reflective thinking as well. So to me, the test is the wrong test. You know, yes, computers will be able to write like journalists eventually, but that's not, that's not how the human brain works all the time because it'll mm. be the human brain that makes discoveries. Um, and, and I think, again, consciousness is far removed from anything that we will ever fully understand
1: so is it singularity? Is that the that's the theory of um, artificial intelligence meeting human intelligence? Yeah.
0: And you don't think that all happen? I, look, I, I listen a lot and I read a lot in the area. I'm, I'm not optimistic. But I, you know, as a human who is interested in ideas, I'm happy to be proven wrong, mm. and I'm always open to be proven wrong. So I'm not kind of set. In any way, but I just kind of think when you actually look at how the brain works, or how little we know about how the brain works, more than anything, and um, you know how we extrapolate from what we can work out about how the brain works, we've got a long way to go mm. before we can um, create a facsimile.
1: And there's also something so mysterious, in a romantic sense, yeah. about what it is to be a living breathing talking human being that has a soul that has individuality uh that can make discoveries that can be out in the absolute bliss of wonder mm. um you know of existence of the world of a tree a mm. flower a sunset you know which if artificial intelligence was able to replicate it would kind of it's like it's almost a, a layer of wonder and almost innocence that would be completely smashed.
0: Yeah. Yes. Whether that's an issue or not, you, you know, I don't think that'll prevent it from happening.
1: No, of course not. I'm, I guess this is more on a spiritual level. <laughs> that's
0: right. That's right. And look, I, I actually think that the biggest mistake that that kind of, well, one of the biggest mistakes we've made probably in the last 30 or 40 years is this... Is this um, uh, this idea that rationalism is the only way to think about how we live—you know—the um, a kind of hegemony which is that if if you can if you can be conscious of what it is that motivates you to do what you're doing, then you're in control. Mm. And in psychology, you know, there's a whole field um, of um, of psychology which you know is built around this kind of rational you know think you think your problems out and you'll be okay um and you know to some degree cbt is is a useful kind of way of thinking about it um you know
1: what is cbt oh, cognitive
0: behavioral therapy so it's a like cognitive you know thinking about things will help you yeah to solve problems but i think that there are other things that we don't fully understand and kind of Freud was getting to it, but he got, got a bit distracted by penises and mothers and things <laughs> like that. He was kind of getting to these unconscious motivations. Um, and to me, that's part of that mystery of what it is to be human is that there are some things that we do that we're not really conscious of why we do them. And there's a, there's a whole kind of area of research um, that looks at this idea that um part of the brain's role is to be this great interpreter to actually, as we do something, to interpret it in a cognitive way is to kind of use the frontal lobe, you know, the, the kind of executive functions to say, and here's the reason why you just did that ridiculous thing. <laughs> and then that what that means is that we feel like we're in control.
1: Mm, it's the illusion of control. That's right.
0: It? That's exactly right. So, um, and we kind of see that. Again, I'm, I'm a bit hesitant, you know, to kind of look at things like, um, fmri scans you know brain scans and stuff like that and say well you know a person does this and then the frontal lobe lights up and that's the executive function because it's a little bit kind of post-hot rational rationalization you know we're saying ah now we understand it because that's what happened you know there was there was a bit of blood moving through the front of the brain there but that said at a at an intellectual level i can see why that would happen you know why you would need to be to have it explained back to you in some way and in a really kind of ridiculously fast way why you're doing what you're doing And, and i come across it a lot with people is that the moment that i do research that shows that a lot of the choices that people make happen outside their consciousness that they're doing it automatically or that they're doing it without thinking that they're doing it um in conflict with what people would think is a rational choice they go well that wouldn't happen to me you know the um uh and and I can understand why I get pushback. You know, I'll I'll throw something on Twitter about, you know, an article that I'd written or something like that, or an article about, you know, people make worse choices with food when they're under stress and stuff like that. And people come back and say, I'd never do that, you know. And again, that's the brain explaining back to them that they're they're, they're in control, that they have control. When in fact, I guess for me, and maybe this is kind of coming back to our original therapy kind of thing, (laughs) which is for me, it's always been about saying, if I accept that there is a whole bunch of things out of my control, um, I actually feel more more okay about my existence. Mm. That's me accepting the, um, I guess, the ridiculousness of existence as well, is to say, well, these, these are just things that happen. You it's know? all part
1: of the cosmic joke, isn't it?
0: That's right. That's exactly that we actually right. matter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that yeah. we're not going to die. And that we're not going to, yeah, exactly. But that's a kind of to me that's an intellectual exercise as well. It's saying mm. it's okay to be okay about randomness and unconscious decision making, and go with it. Sometimes contemplate it. Mm.
1: Well, harping back again to what we were talking about before, and and this is something that I've been investigating a lot in myself as well as people around me is this notion that you're kind of always operating on a subconscious level or a conscious level depending on how much, I guess, investigation and work you've done on yourself. But you're either operating from a place of fear or a place of love. It's a pretty black and white way to look at things, I think, on one level. But on another level, it introduces a lot of uh, very complex shades of grey. Yes. Um, And I think, you know, when people are stressed or whatever they're, they're operating from a place of fear when they're more relaxed or accepting of the cosmic joke so to speak they're probably likely to be operating from a place of love um, is this something that you go into at all when you're starting to think about or going down this l- way of processing
0: um, I, I guess I'd I'd put the I'd put the terms in in probably a more Maybe not a... Maybe a more scientific kind of context, I'm which being, is to I'm being say, crude in an emotional yeah, way. Yeah, 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 that's right. And, and, and where you're coming from is kind of right, in that when you're under stress, generally speaking, you have less capacity to think things through in a conscious way. Mm. Um, when you're under pressure, when you're being emotionally engaged, you tend to rely on what we would kind of call implicit responses, the natural kind of responses. And so... Um, and str- and I and I actually think stress and pressure and emotional engagement and things can come from all sorts of um, contexts. So uh, and and the re- research would say the same thing. So you know when you're in a group, you'll behave differently when you're in a group from when you're on your own. Um, when you're highly strung or stressed or in a hurry, you drive differently to you know to when you're not. Um, and with some more rage. That's right. That's right. Um, when you're trying to impress a girl. Um, you know, again, people behave differently. Um, there's interesting research to show that men drive more aggressively when women are watching. You know, mm-hmm. And again, it's because, you know, to impress the chicks. Show, show them the, the feathers. But that's right, that's right, that's right. Um, and to me then, that is when people feel secure, when people feel like they have an understanding of something, even if they don't, but when they feel they have an understanding of it, they tend to make what we might call better choices, better decisions. Um, and some, some of the research that I do looks at that, you know, is that this idea of um, what is vulnerability as well. And to me, everybody is vulnerable. It's just a spectrum of vulnerability. And you're vulnerable and you have vulnerable states and situations put you in different vulnerable states as well. And, you know, even, it, it, it sounds kind of pretty banal, if you're if you've spent the day on your own and you go out to the shops and somebody's nice to you in a shop you're more likely to respond to their um their advice and their assertions to buy something than if you're with somebody else because you or if you spent the day with people who love you as well and to me that's a form of vulnerability as well if you're feeling safe if you're feeling secure then you just tend to make Different. I don't know if they're better, but you make different and probably more rational decisions because you have the uh, intellectual conscious space to be able to think about things. And I to come back to your life and generally the life of a of a of a person in the entertainment industry. You know, you you are constantly vulnerable, Mm. and that's why you you often make decisions and that you may regret, but then you look for explanations to help you navigate your ego through that mm-hmm. as well.
1: Uh, there have been plenty of times where I've uh, <laughs> sent an email and on retrospect gone, I should have sent that email in a better headspace.
0: Yes. Because yeah.
1: I'm feeling desperate because I need the job or I need the money or I want the validation or mm-hmm. I want the connection instead of when I've been in a really content space yeah. and I the emails are f- you know far more um, just rational... Uh, not reaching for anything it's just you know a collaborative a a collaboration or Mm. something like that
0: yeah and and we know from research that you can practice that Mm. as well is that the more that you actually build up um these things the better you become at it i think that's another interesting kind of thing as as time has gone on we've realized that while things like willpower which you know we would say is a is part of what you're doing there, which is, you know, this ability to resist doing things in the moment yeah. and when you're angry. You know, f- forms of willpower. Willpower, while it's still a finite resource, you can actually get better at it as you practice it. And a muscle. That's, that's right. And it's re- that's, you know, that's a whole new part of the world of, of psychology that's only really emerging in the last couple of years is this idea that um, the more that you practice that willpower muscle, the more that you train it, mm. the better you become at it. And what's interesting is that you can also use that willpower in a kind of analogous areas you can actually you become stronger at resisting things in all sorts of areas the more that you do it but you have to have those resources first you know you have to mm. actually be in a good place to start practicing that willpower and again with me i mean i've done research in areas like smoking cessation and obesity and um alcohol and things like that and again you've actually got to say well you know how do we get people to that stage where they can start building it up rather than just saying to people stop smoking or stop eating or stop drinking which is kind of what government you know the folk psychology that goes on in government is you actually say well what are the underlying issues that prevent a person from having that willpower let's deal with them and then let's give them the resources to be able to kind of solve these life problems as well um it is, it is. I guess it's more about saying not everybody is on the same playing field. Mm. So we have to understand what field they're on, <laughs> if I continue with that, what field they're on before we start telling them how to play the game. And that's, uh, that's, again, a really interesting thing that I find in my research is that I'm constantly asked to kind of speak to panels and go to talk to government and all these things. And even just highlighting to them the kind of complexities the variables that determine a person's choices um you've got to overcome a person uh, a person's perspective which is everybody just needs to kind of you know you know to to kind of (laughs) toughen the fuck up you know because that's not how that's not life no you know it's not um human beings with real feelings that's right that's right and you do get a lot of that you know, just tell people what they need to do and they'll do it. Mm. And and to me, the argument is always, what are we trying to achieve? How do we get there? Not here's the tactic, but how do we actually get there? And then let's different groups or different individuals or whatever will need different paths. Mm. But it, it, to me, it's what are we trying to achieve rather than what what's the tactic that we're trying to. Yeah, to use at the moment
1: and I guess to go back to um, what you're talking about using I guess smoking or obesity as examples what's the underlying issue that's causing people to do that you know what, is, is, it, is it a self-esteem issue um, which I assume most of that is um, I,
0: I, I would say most behaviours are normative basically it's just what people do mm. and You can see with things like smoking that it was a lot easier to be a smoker in the seventies, because all of the modelling was well, everyone smokes, so it's a lot easier. I mean, this is again comes back to what it is to be human as well. Is to okay to fit in? I have to do these things. So much again of what our behaviour is is built around fitting in. So if I think it was what was it about fifty-five percent of the population. Were smokers in the seventies? Wow! It's now about it nineteen right. or seventeen percent, or something like that. Mm. So it's really hard to be a smoker. So you know, thumbs up to smokers. They're kind of pushing through <laughs> and saying, oh, "I'm using that willpower." That's right. They're using that willpower and challenging those norms.
1: Um, my grandmother actually told me because she was a smoker for twenty or thirty years or something, and she was telling me that she when she stopped smoking was when she went out for dinner one night with. A whole lot of her friends and smoking had gone out of vogue. Yes. And suddenly she realized that all, you know, cause everyone had a little ashtray in front of them for their cigarettes. Suddenly she was the only one that was using the ashtray and that was the impetus for her to yep. stop smoking. I smoked for like 10 years. Um, and I stopped smoking because I found, I found out that someone in my family who was, of a reasonably young age, had cancer, and it shook me to my very core so mm. much so that I went, "The fuck am I doing? I'm giving, I'm giving that to myself, mm. and it's not as if we're in an age where people don't understand the consequences of right. this. I'm making a choice. Yeah. This is the consequence. Yes, um, and I think that I have very strong willpower, so I was able to just samurai that and, yeah. and you know not <laughs> do it anymore. Um, but I think. You know, I, I don't think I was using it. I was probably using it to numb pain from the past and the habit of it was yeah. uh, cathartic.
0: And there's chemistry going on as well. And, yeah. and There's <laughs> uh, a pretty serious chemistry going on in your brain.
1: Yeah. Um, the chemistry of all that. But I, I, I understand and I respect and I make no judgment of people who do still smoke. It's just I can't believe how stupid I was. Yeah.
0: I And it is interesting I mean, I think, like you say People now completely understand That smoking is not a good idea Um, I think the fact I I remember when I was doing this study Because I was doing it with some colleagues in the UK And I was at the Open University Which is in Milton Keynes And I remember... um, walking from one office to the other in the smoking area at Milton, at the Open University, is out in a paddock. It's it's just a concrete block out in the middle of a paddock. And so what they basically said is that, you know, you have every right to smoke, (laughs) just, you know, we're going to make it as unpleasant as possible. You'll essentially be cattle. That's right, exactly. And and, and that to me, you know, all of these things send signals. So, you know, things like, and I was doing, I was giving, um, I was on a panel at the launch of the... Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education, their report this year, and they were talking about the 3am the, the lockout in Sydney and how, you know, that's changed people's behaviour. And I said, actually, I don't know if the actual lockout will have changed people's behaviour, but the fact that that the thing happened, that the Premier came out and said, this is a bad thing all these things are symbols to help people to work their way through the world and go okay this is not something that is acceptable anymore Mm. and it is interesting because you know i i have kind of connections with some of these royal commissions going on at the moment and again but the fact that you have a royal commission talking about an issue of say domestic violence or um, institutionalized you know sexual assault and things like that it sends a message to the rest of the community to say this isn't acceptable anymore and i think again if we're talking about social norms when governments or when when media when anyone starts saying this is not a, a good thing or this is a good thing What people are trying to do, because we have limited resources, is navigate their way through the world and go, okay, if they're talking about this on the project and that there's a Royal Commission about it and that the Herald Sun is writing about it and whatever, 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 maybe this is something I should consider. I mean, I'm kind of over-emphasising the conscious process of that. Mm. Most of it isn't conscious. It's just that we're busy thinking creatures. We're taking in information and we're saying, what do I need to do? to have a life
1: and we're 100 percent suggestible
0: uh pretty much Mm. although we wouldn't know we wouldn't like to admit that no we're kind of suggestible in the i think in the context of what it is to be a human being and to be conscious Mm. as well you know that whole idea of um if it fits in with our view of how we want to be seen and maybe that comes back to your idea of you know this idea of what is truth and authenticity well, is, look at you bringing it full circle i know i know because i think truth <laughs> yeah is is your own construct of what your truth is yeah it's no it's no absolute it is actually you saying well what is it's totally subjective what is that's right what is my perspective of my truth so that i can work my way out in this world and have something you know akin to an existence
1: Mm. bloody hell
0: (laughs) yeah sorry (laughs) my mind just exploded (laughs) i think that feels like
1: that feels like a really natural place to end it oh good um i do have to ask you one thing that i i just i ask everyone and that is what makes you silly
0: what makes me silly um i think after dinner in my house i think once we are once our tummies are full my my kids and my wife we just be silly (laughs) um we'll get out the ukuleles sometimes or we'll we'll i mean last night you know we we were talking about irma thurman which was you know irma Therman, but it just kind of took on a whole new kind of world of ridiculousness um <laughs> and my daughter has an ex- a really great sense of humor and it's nice that you know i pass it on to her because i know that i've got a great sense of humor. yeah so, no yeah. i was gonna say right. yes, yes. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's in her genes obviously yes yeah
1: cool well thank you so much for taking the time this hour has flown by i feel like i don't i think i asked one question from what i oh. had actually plan to ask. I'll we'll so. send them
0: through and I'll write them up for you. No, <laughs> I'll just read them out <laughs> Yeah, that's on, right. on yeah. my own.
1: Yes. Uh, thank you so much, Paul. Uh, Cheers. This has been Dr. Paul Harrison. Is there anything that you'd like to throw out to the people listening at home?
0: Uh, no. No, I'm happy with the conversation. It's always fun to talk about things. I, I guess that's the thing is that um, coming to terms with, to me, the big thing is coming to terms with the idea that you know there's a lot that's out of our control but actually being about good about that is is a nice way to kind of think, think about your place in the world. Mm.
1: Cool. Well, I'm going to um, float back into my body and get on <laughs> with the rest of my day. And uh, I guess we can cut it there. Thanks, Paul. Cheers. Well, it took me a little while to clean up my brain uh, after that chat. What an amazing and insightful person Dr. Paul Harrison is. Thank you so much, Dr. Paul, for coming in for humoring me and for uh, getting a little deep into my brain. Certainly, uh, certainly given me plenty of food for thought when it comes to making the decisions that I make. And you probably want to know how you can win uh, coming up next hockey jersey. Well, uh, it's really, it's really easy friends. All you have to do is like our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Pick one of your favorite episodes, share it on your social medias and hashtag C-U-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. That's it. I'll pick a friend at random to send one of these hockey jerseys to. I'll announce the winner in two weeks, friends. Uh, you can share as many of the episodes as you want, as many times as you want to win one of these awesome hockey jerseys that I wore and gave to uh, to Kevin Smith and to Jason Muse uh, at a show last night. And next week's guest, friends, you may know him from being on lots of the television programs. Uh, he's most recently known for being on House Husbands, uh, Secret River, and, uh, and Play School. Coming up next, Rhys Muldoon. We'll see you next week, friends.